Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome once again to A More Perfect Union, and we have convened once again, our august group. You're all feeling august, aren't we? Yes, we are. I see heads nodding. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we have uh, there's a, a big gust coming through right now. <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> okay. I, I think Jeff is implying that we tend to be long winded. No. Anyway, <laughs> I would offer that we are gathered together in a particularly festive and happy mood um, because we are on the recording date which is December the 2nd, in the midst of Hanukkah, and we are also uh, beginning uh, the entire holiday season. And with us today, we have a couple of special guests. Actually, he's not a special guest. He's a returning founder of this program. So along with Dr. Natalie Alinos, good morning, and along with Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, good morning, and along with Representative Jeffrey Roy, all of you august, <laughs> we have the founder of this program joining us once again. Ladies and gentlemen, it's all his fault, Frank Falvey. Hi, Frank. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and Frank is going to regale us. I think that was the word he used uh, with other details long uh, past about holidays. And Natalia, we have another very special guest this morning. I will let you introduce our guest. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Pete. And so nice to see you, Frank. And I'm so sad that our audience can't see you because Frank is the real Santa Claus on uh, our Zoom screens this morning. But our special guest is uh, Rabbi Susie Jacobson. She uses she, they pronouns and serves as associate rabbi and education director at Temple Israel, which is where actually my twins uh, go to school and are uh, in the same class as one of her children, Yitzi. So Rabbi Jacobson received her master's in Jewish education and was ordained as rabbi by Hebrew College in 2015 after a six year immersion in the texts and tenacious creativity of the Jewish people. I'm reading from your profile on Temple Israel, but Rabbi Jacobson, I have known as someone who is tremendously thoughtful. And while I, uh, you know, many of you know, I, I and my family are not of the Jewish faith, has, has shared so much insight. So I'm so happy you're here to join us today to help us learn um, about how, uh, you know, how we celebrate and move forward. So welcome. Uh, Rabbi Susie, is it okay if we just call you Susie? Rabbi Susie? Susie is great. So great to be here with all of you. One of the things that we want to do today is is look at the span of the holidays and what and explore what the season means. And obviously, one of the great starts to the season, particularly this year, is the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah. And I enjoy it as much as the next person. 
Uh, and here we are in the midst of it. Actually, today is the fourth day of Hanukkah, and tonight is the fifth night of Hanukkah when we are recording. So mm-hmm. we're right in the middle. Although I do have to say that because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar and it moves, it doesn't always start the season. Sometimes it right. ends the season. Right. But we're, you know, my, my children in particular were very excited to have a Hanukkah that started pretty immediately after Thanksgiving. So that was also, I believe, the case last year. And then all of a sudden, you know, lunar. A lunar cycle will shift it and it will go back to being much later in the season. Susie, can you share a little bit about what Hanukkah represents for those in the audience who may not know? Absolutely. Hanukkah is perhaps in America the most known of the Jewish holidays, but it is actually one of the least important when it comes to its centrality in, in the religion. In fact, it's not mentioned in the Bible. It, it came much later and it's based off of a uh, second century BCE battle between the Greeks who were trying to take over uh, Jerusalem where the central temple was and a group of Jewish zealots, not central leaders, but zealots, the Maccabees who were fighting against the Greeks, trying to retain the temple, trying to hold on to um, what it meant for them to be Jewish. Um, And it's broadly seen as a fight against assimilation, which is ironic when you see how America, American Jews, or contemporary Jews in general, have really taken on Hanukkah as our sort of holiday season holiday. Um, And there are many assimilationist tendencies in how we celebrate Hanukkah, like all the presents, like the decorations. Like if you go to TJ Maxx, there's a Hanukkah table with like the the gnome in blue, (laughs) sparkly hat, you know? Um, So it's it's a holiday that's sort of steeped in, in, in in so much complexity. So we have the historical battle, right? We have mm-hmm. we have this battle between between these Maccabees and and the Greeks, and the temple is almost destroyed. And as the myth goes, they they went back to the temple before it was completely destroyed, and they were they're rededicating it. The word Hanukkah means dedication, right? So they're rededicating this space, um, and one of the central um, symbols in that temple was the menorah. Um, it, it was it was a it was a fixture of everyday life in the temple. So this is where things get complicated because there's, there's, no, there's no mention in any of the historical information from that time period that the, that the oil lasted for eight days. That got added on 600 years later by the rabbis who were, who were really formulating how we celebrate the memory of this historical battle. And the myth goes that they only found enough oil for one day and it ended up lasting for eight days. And that leads to many of the holiday traditions that, that Jews celebrate the eating lakas and donuts fried in oil to commemorate the oil, lighting the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah every night for eight nights, celebrating the holiday. And, and what scholars think is that it's actually this really interesting combination of things where there were ancient traditions of celebrating a solstice holiday, focusing on light um, as, as the world grew dark, and that there were other Roman holidays of light that lasted eight days around the solstice. So all of this comes together, the, his, the history, the historic myth, this, this added miracle um, to this wonderful festival of light. And Jews today really love having a holiday this season. It's pretty great. Um, and I will say that al- although presents and all of that are not a part of it, it adds a lot of joy at a moment in our year that is really dark and really cold. Um, and, and so it, it adds an extra beauty into our homes. The most important important message of Hanukkah is the 
putting our menorah in the window, we're supposed to publicize the miracle and, and really be out there in our communities as Jews. And that is a really deeply important and also ironic moment for, for Jews who are assimilated into the general culture that is generally Christian and generally celebrating Christmas. Um, so we have, we have all of these, these mixed messages of, of fighting assimilation, of being assimilated, of being proud of who we are, and being able to celebrate that communally and in public. And at the very kind of local level, is it, do people celebrate every night with dinners with large families, small families? How is it kind of, you know, around the table? Is it, do you bring friends in, friends who are not Jewish in? I'm, I'm looking for an invitation if, if that's the case. <laughs> You guys are welcome. My my kids would love that. Um, absolutely. So typically you have one or two bigger nights with family when the extended family would gather. But every night in our house, 6.30 p.m., we light the Hanukkah and we sing songs and we play dreidel, which is a which is a game. It's a it's a top um, that has letters on each side um, that in Hebrew mean a great miracle happened there. And and we invite people in, non-Jews, Jews gathering in our synagogues, but it's typically a family holiday at home um, and a really nice one during these really cold, dark nights. I will say that there's a, in the, in the black community, I think Hanukkah was actually part of the inspiration for Kwanzaa. Correct. Uh, because um, uh, I have a number of, uh, I grew up with a number of uh, Jewish friends and Jewish families and absolutely loved Hanukkah because it extended Christmas for us <laughs> in a most wonderful way. Uh, but the other part, too, was that uh, many of my, uh, uh, especially those who were practicing Jews uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the traditional uh, faith, uh, would talk about how they, they felt Hanukkah was contrived, that it really was not a part of the sort of year-long uh, set of holidays. And I think your, your point, uh, Rabbi Susie with, uh, you know, with respect to, uh, you, you know, it's not one of the more sort of known holidays in the Jewish faith, but it is probably the most recognizable, uh, amongst those who are non-Jews. Uh, but still it is a wonderful celebration, uh, in this season and it kept all of us uh, basically bound together when I was growing up. And I love that idea, too, uh, because you're right. There is assimilation. In other words, there is this opportunity for Jews and non-Jews and Christians to all come together around this season of the year so that we could all uh, celebrate our own way, but then still distinguish our individual face, which, uh, you know, I think during this season should be a season of inclusion. But I fear uh, before we go there and stuff, but, uh, but but I fear that there are some detractors, which we'll talk about later. I was going to respond. I, I just think it's I think it's complicated. You know, when people call Hanukkah the Jewish Christmas, it's so far from the truth. It's it's not a foundational story or or celebration or festival in our tradition. And and yet, on the other hand, it's it is this incredible moment to have to have something to bring to the interfaith table. And for our, our children and our families to celebrate this time of year is really beautiful. And we hold both, both of those things. One of the things that I uh, like about it is, is the whole concept of rededication. That is rededication to being Jewish, rededication to who you are, uh, your history, heritage, and so on. And I think that for me, looking at the notion of 
religious tolerance, you know, First Amendment, I find tolerance to be an inadequate description of what I would strive for. Uh, I would prefer to change tolerance to celebration. That is, you know, in addressing what you were talking about, the notion of being assimilated and at the same time wishing to preserve things that make you unique who you are. I, for one, enjoy all of the differences. I could not imagine a world where we were all exactly the same. That would be boring. That would be monotonous. And so the cheerful differences, the joyful differences that we enjoy, I think are the things that I wish would rise up above what I consider to be a sort of minimalist bar in terms of describing religious tolerance, racial tolerance, free speech, et cetera. And I would like to, to find a way towards something more robust and more, quite frankly, more interesting um, by getting into those discussions. And that's essentially what part of today is about. I don't, I don't see it as being uh, in conflict to be unique and at the same time be assimilated is not the right word, but appreciated perhaps is, uh, where people can look at all of the different aspects, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, even Saturnalia, call it what you will, uh, uh, Ningajo, a whole bunch of Diwali, you know, name it, blessed Eid, all of it, and that each of these things reflects the best of us. And you know, for Hanukkah, it's, it's, it's also, I think, good that it comes at a variable time in the year, because I think it also reflects well on New Year's as much as it does on what we consider Christmas. That is, New Year's is about a rededication, and New Year's is about, okay, what are we going to do now going into the new year to, to find our better selves uh, in general? And I think that the same spirit prevails. So that's just sort of my perspective. Well, I uh, just am enjoying this conversation. I feel like uh, I just want to keep it going and, and, and hear some more. But it's, uh, you know, one line that you had said, Pete, was uh, you, you're not crazy about the word tolerates. And um, I was uh, thinking of that uh, topic uh, the other night when I had used a quote from uh, an essayist, uh, Kurt, uh, Kurt Tukalski, a German essayist of Jewish origin who, who noted that a country is not just what it does, it is also what it tolerates. And uh, I think that fits in nicely with uh, what you were trying to describe. And, uh, you know, this type of season and uh, what we do at this time of year, no matter what your faith is, I think it really is, uh, is uplifting and uh, it's a great way to close out the year and you know, I don't have to begin thinking about weight loss until January 1st. So uh, I, I do my best to do weight gain. Uh -huh. uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I think I'm not alone in that category. But, uh, you know, I'm excited to see uh, Frank here today. And right. uh, I understand that uh, he's going to give us some, uh, some insight into the wonderful St. Nicholas uh, and, and that whole story. So, Again, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to uh, listen up here for a bit. So, Frank, all yours. For our listening public, uh, let me describe myself. I look a lot like Santa Claus. I have the belly. <laughs> I have the white beard. I have the age. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 2,000 years old. I was born 
as uh, St. Nicholas in 270. I died in the 340 or something like that, born in Turkey. And I became a bishop in uh, Myra, uh, Turkey. And I've been to Jerusalem, did a pilgrimage. I have allegedly, and I believe I was, at the Council of Nicaea, which is a first, uh, one of the first Christian gatherings to uh, iron out theology in the Christian belief. I was noted for my gift giving. And my first gift, allegedly, on three separate occasions, I left bags of gold for a widower who had three daughters and no dowry. And so from there, I gave allegedly children. I, I became in the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church, you could pray to saints for miracles. And I was the patron saint of sailors, children, whole list of other things. One of my most amazing things, though, is a thousand years after I died, I became the patron saint of Russia. I am an Orthodox Christian. I also, in the early days of Christianity in my being, I was a bishop. And, and the, the role of the bishop throughout, up maybe up to the 15th or 16th century, you see pictures of St. Nicholas and of the beginning of Santa Claus with a bishop's hat, a bishop's staff, and one of the other interesting things is I would be clothed in robes. And in Russia, I would have a white robe. I would be emerald. Uh, in Germany, I might have had a green one. So different traditions began to develop. In uh, Germany, the log and the Christmas tree came in. In England, I was called Father Christmas, getting away somewhat from the bishops and the bishop staff, and I took on a persona of more a giving an older man in, in tra medieval tradition. In Holland, I came by ship with a black uh, helper. In Spain, again, I believe I had a black helper that uh, accompanied me. Michael uh, or someone at the very beginning of the program mentioned cold. And cold, people probably don't even know what it is today. <laughs> but back in the 40s and 50s, a lot of houses were heated by it. And it's black and dusty. I mean, ask Joe Manson what coal is out of West Virginia. And he can tell you it's still the, you know, West Virginia's important uh, economic crop. But Santa began to give out gifts. He began coal back in the Middle Ages, even though it might have not have been a great gift, as someone also said, it heated the house. It, it, it provided warmth. So Santa in, uh, I believe it's Norway or Sweden, has a tradition of this young, probably 12-year-old with a halo around her head called St. Lucia. So many different uh, countries have developed this long tradition of Santa that began, St. Nicholas, that began to turn into Santa Claus. Now, where did the American Santa Claus come from? 
Frank, well, can I can, jump in and tell you sure. quickly about Greece? Because I grew up in Greece. We Go don't ahead. have St. Nicholas. We have St. Basil. And it was always very confusing to me to understand, but they're two different bishops. And St. Basil brings the gifts on New Year's Eve, um, not on Christmas. So we get them by St. Basil on New Year's Eve. And it was very confusing. And it is very confusing for my kids because it's like, why are there two of them? And why do they come on the 25th and on the 1st? And why does it depend on whether we're in Greece or not? And whether it's your Greek grandparents or not? Back to the U.S. Back, well, that's to, Norway. <laughs> Back to Norway for a minute to follow up on what you're saying. My feast day is December 6th. And in, I believe it's one of the Scandinavian countries. They leave out in front of their house wooden shoes on December 6th on, on the Feast of St. Nicholas. And the shoes are filled with some gifts. And if they leave food for the reindeer, right, they might even get some chocolate or sweet gifts. So, yeah, yes, uh, the countries are absolutely wonderful. All right, let, uh, let me conti continue in America for a minute. St. Nicholas came to New York City via the Dutch. Okay, so via the Dutch, okay, we have this uh, person mainly in green, okay, uh, develop in, in New York City. We have the Clement Moore. Frank, uh, just what year uh, is this that, uh, that the, the it, when the Dutch first came to America, 17, I don't know, early 70s, 17, uh, the early 1700s. I'm going it was early on. Because when the Dutch came to America, they, they brought this tr tradition of uh, St. Nicholas, which then turned into uh, uh, Santa Claus. Uh, Thomas Nast, and I'm not sure uh, what century, the late 17th or in the 18th century, was an illustrator. And he began drawing uh, this plump uh, St. Nicholas, more jolly, uh, again, basically in, in green. And along the same time comes this Clement Moore, the night before Christmas, that further defines who Santa Claus is and, and his reindeer and his sleigh. And finally, in about 1931, Coca-Cola wanted to do an ad with uh, St. Nicholas. And their marketing department did not like green as, as the color. So they put Santa Claus in red and drinking, not having that long pipe that you see in, in the NAS pictures. He, Santa Claus kind of had a long pipe. They gave him a bottle of Coca-Cola and he's drinking a, a bottle of Coca-Cola. So today, even when you see ads on TV of Coke and you see Santa Claus in the red suit, and you see the Coca-Cola. That is somewhat of, of a tradition of how secularly Santa Claus is throughout the world and how he came to America. Yeah, Coca-Cola did manage to infuse uh, Santa with their standard Coca-Cola red, uh, which uh, was a big deal back in the 30s when they did that. Also, too, reflecting back on the green part, uh, German and Dutch tradition uh, with respect to the darkening of days and eventually the return of light uh, looked at green, uh, which comes from the evergreen trees, hence the Christmas trees, as light 
uh, as life never going away, but life being revived with the lightning of days. And hence the evergreen tree played an interesting role in Germanic culture uh, with respect to defining the holidays in general. And also here in New England, the Puritans, Christmas was never in the Bible. If it wasn't in the Bible, we did not do it. So in Boston, Massachusetts, New England, we never really celebrated Christmas early on because it wasn't part of the congregational, the pilgrim heritage. Down in Maryland, Christmas kind of got out of hand because it was a day of celebration, but more shooting off of guns, more a little more riotous celebration. Uh, so in different parts of early colonial America, there were entirely different ways of celebrating Christmas uh, that no longer exist. I love that we've talked about Christmas without mentioning Jesus and his birth once, which is which is sort of to the point of the commercialization of this holiday and, and what what it is about, you know, in, in terms of, you know, going up in Greece, it was pretty commercial Christmas, but Easter was the very religious one where it's like the death. But I feel like as a kid, you're trying to understand the stories and Santa Claus is a bigger figure in Christmas than sort of baby Jesus, even though, mm -hmm. and maybe that links to your point, Susie, around, you know, the multiple ways in which we, you know, contradictions of what is most important about a holiday. Is it a religious, is it a secular holiday? And then the commercial aspect, especially the Coca-Cola uh, point here is, is so critical. Let me say though, that St. Nicholas began with Jesus of the giving of the gift, because the, the gift of Christ was a gift of God. And the three wise men brought three gifts uh, after Jesus was born, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So even St. Nicholas, the, the beginning was the birth of Christ in the celebration up to maybe the 1500s or 1600s was certainly more a religious celebration than uh, a secular. And then in the 18th century, 17th and 18th century, Christmas was celebrated after Christmas. We had the 12 days of Christmas where people would be uh, going to the mansions and would be singing and would be invited in uh, to participate and do some wassailing. Uh, so the Christmas celebration up until the turn of the 20th century, really w was a, a after Christmas celebration. Commercialization and uh, turning it, you know, I often like to say, I think if, if Christmas Day was stolen from the pag pagans, then the secular world has reclaimed it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so there, the tradition, uh, there uh, has changed from after Christmas to the celebration before Christmas, because after the 25th of December, how many of us still celebrate the 12 days of Christmas? I think this is what is so complicated about all of these winter holidays is that there, there are these very specific religious aspects um, and then um, these cultural, even secular elements that are about the season and about, about community and family and all of these shared values that we have. I mean, growing up as a Jewish kid, I, on the one hand, had a family that was very anti-Christmas, 
never have a Christmas tree in any of our homes. It was like a marker of our Judaism to be anti-Christmas. And my, I mean, my mother, you know, just horrified knowing that there are other Jews who have Christmas trees in the history of American Jews. Um, you know, it was it was quite the American Reform Jewish thing to have a Christmas tree. Um, and, and my mom in particular was just very against that. But on the other hand, I sang in a magicals group and I sang Christmas carols every year. And it was my busy season. I know the alto part of every traditional carol. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a huge part of my of my life and growing up and, and then also sharing with other friends and and going into their homes. So I so I think I think we hold we hold both of these tensions of like what is ours, what is shared, what what is what is particularly religious. Yeah, I hear performances. You want to go to the Christmas Revels at Sanders Theater, which is a celebration of medieval Christmas, medieval stories both in theater and in song, the Boston Pops Christmas uh, uh, at Symphony Hall is absolutely magical. And if you have any Celtic blood in you, you want to go to Brian O'Donovan's A Celtic Christmas. What are some of the things that you like to go to or do during this season? On Monday Uh, night, I'm going to see the cast of uh, Hamilton uh, sing uh, holiday songs at the Black Box Theater in Franklin. And I was wondering, I said, how did the Black Box Theater in Franklin get the uh, cast of Hamilton to come and sing these songs? And I realized that uh, uh, stages are dark on Monday nights. So uh, that stage in Providence where Hamilton is being uh, played is going to be dark and they're going to head up to Franklin and they're going to uh, regale us with some tunes uh, uh, on Monday night. So uh, that's where I'm heading. And uh, I've been to uh, Symphony Hall to see uh, uh, the show there a couple of years ago. Uh, but one of my real favorites, back to my days as a cello player, uh, in my early days of my life, uh, was uh, Handel's Messiah. And uh, I always have enjoyed that performance. I I would play cello uh, each year during the uh, the performance in the Milford area, uh, and now, since I put that cello away uh, 30 years ago, uh, I now get to enjoy other people playing it, and uh, it's just a great, uh, great moment to capture the uh, spirit of the season. So that that's I, where I hang I admit out. That is my ultimate favorite. What's that? Handel's Messiah is my ultimate favorite. In high school, right. I, I, I sang I sang the alto part, and we we we'd get paid to go sing it in different places, and then that that would fund the rest of the year. Like, Can you sing it for our... us now? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. A lot of holidays. I'll repeat. Yes. <laughs> Comfort ye is my favorite. Yeah, I uh, I've done both, Frank. That is, I've I've done the revels. And I've also uh, done the Boston Pops. What strikes me uh, about those two events is how very different they are around the same festivities. Um, And they sort of focus on, when you put them together, they sort of focus on the notion of of the evolution of the celebration over time, because the rebels go so far back. Uh, And uh, that's one of the things I like about it. It gives you that perspective of time and how things keep on evolving. Um, and, and what you have is this sort of, it's not gene recombination, but social recombination and the social recombination over centuries, uh, is interesting in that it makes the holidays, 
I hope and I believe, it makes the holidays, whatever they may be, appropriate for their age, as the holidays keep on adapting to the needs of the society. And I think that that's a very significant point about why we celebrate. Certainly these days and what we've been dealing with in the past couple of years, uh, and obviously we continue to deal with, with the fresh arrival of Omicron, yay, Omicron, oh my God. Anyway. Um, Can I actually jump in with a little PSA that we are seeing? Uh, we are seeing a spike in COVID um, these days in Massachusetts. We're seeing it quite seriously, both in our hospitalizations. So it's not just something that you say, oh, whatever, I'm vaccinated. If you haven't gotten your booster, get your booster. Mm-hmm. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, get your first vaccine. And everybody is eligible above the age of five. I have vaccinated my uh, eight-year-old and I can't wait for my four-year-olds to be eligible. So just wanted to share that this is serious. And as we want to get back together and celebrate with family, especially if we're doing it in a multi-generational way, you know, with grandparents and great-grandparents, it's so, so important to take this precaution. If you get vaccinated with your booster today, you will be okay for, you know, the January 1st. Even if your little ones are starting today, their period, they will be in a much better place. So please, Mm -hmm. For everybody listening, it's really important. We are simply not out of it. And every winter, as we all move more indoors and get together, we're seeing a real, real spike right now in Massachusetts. So I'm I just wanted to add that back to you, Pete. No, I agree. We need to we we need, I think, socially and personally to celebrate the holidays as best we can with whatever intensity we can, and at the same time be respectful of the fact that we're still living in a time where uh, science and caution prevail, uh, and that we should try to to celebrate accordingly. And to that end, I think, as I was saying earlier, the holidays, perhaps this time of year, I hear people talking about, they feel like the holidays are more important. Because of all that we've been through, we need to find a way to to keep our spirits high and to hopefully move on. And, and to that end, um, I think that uh, the holidays perform a useful function in that regard. Um, oh, on that note, I don't want to shift gears completely, but I do want to talk about uh, a gift that the legislature is giving to the children of Massachusetts. Um, with the and and we did it during this holiday season, and I, I actually spoke about it at uh, a lighting of the menorah on Monday night at the uh, Holocaust uh, Memorial in Boston, but we um, passed the Genocide Education Act. Um, I first filed this bill in 2013, so um, I had much browner hair uh, back then, but uh, it was trying to get the right uh, language and the right uh, mechanism for implementing this legislation, and it took all of uh, eight years to get it precise but we did pass it, it's sitting on the governor's desk today. And why I I bring it up in the context of of Hanukkah is we uh, talk about uh, the festival of lights. And we talk about, uh, and I wasn't entirely clear on the the myth of the oil, but it was certainly an analogy that uh, I I took a shining to, uh, that, you know, that oil was a small measure that exceeded all expectations. And uh, I said, you know, by giving uh, 
children an opportunity to learn about genocides of all sorts, uh, that that's a way we can prevent problems from becoming systemic because we're shining light on the problem and we're equipping everyone with the knowledge, the skills and the confidence to intervene when they see it. And uh, I believe that genocide education is that small measure and those molecules of oil that can outlast every expectation because education is light. And uh, um, my birthday is September 8th. And my mother used to tell me that uh, the best birthday gift you can get is education. And the first day of school uh, typically fell on my birthday. So she would always convince me that education is a great gift. And uh, and I also believe that education is light and light always conquers darkness. And, and like the lights of the menorah, uh, hope can never be extinguished. So um, I did want to talk about that uh, today because I think that's a great gift that uh, we're giving to this generation. And hopefully that will lead to uh, further generations who will uh, stand up and speak out and uh, prevent these atrocities from happening. Because one thing I know, and I think we all agree, that it's simple to say that it's morally wrong to kill millions of people. But if it's morally wrong and ethically wrong, why does it continue to happen in our world? Uh, so it's good that we have the opportunity to talk about it and think about it. And uh, I will continue to view it as a gift uh, to this generation. So, Jeff, can you tell us, I was going to ask Jeff to tell us a little bit more about the bill. What age, uh, what what age group is going to be getting this sort of, and I should note that when I was on the campaign trail in Fall River, I had met the director of the Holocaust and Genocide Center at Bristol Community College, and I was really interested in what they were doing. I mean, obviously, I have, you know, education at the higher education level is happening, but I'm, what will, will my third grader get some education on this? Not likely. It's really geared to the middle school and high school age groups. Uh, we really leave it to the discretion of the individual school districts to determine when is the appropriate time to introduce it to their students, but it truly is geared towards uh, middle and high school. And the notion is uh, that every student should be uh, given an opportunity to um, discover and learn about uh, genocides before they leave the 12th grade. And we're, and it's been long been a part of the curriculum frameworks. I say long, it was in 2018 that genocide education was added to the curriculum frameworks, but the curriculum frameworks were voluntary. And even though we had this in the curriculum frameworks, we were seeing a rise in anti-Semitic events and activities throughout the country, and even right here in our own communities in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, so we saw that uh, even though we had it in our curriculum frameworks, it wasn't making uh, a dent. Uh, I think uh, you can all recall back in, in March uh, when the Duxbury football team uh, was called out for um, using uh, play calls uh, that were uh, anti-Semitic. So, uh, you know, we could see these things happening. So we knew we had to take a, a, a bigger step. And that bigger step was to make it mandatory throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that they teach this consistent with the curriculum frameworks, which are already established. But on top of that, we provided a funding mechanism where we created a genocide education trust fund that would be uh, financed 
with money from the legislature. And it would also accept uh, private donations from entities that wanted to contribute to that trust fund. And all of the fines that were collected for civil rights violations would go into this genocide education trust fund. So uh, we wanted to avoid an unfunded mandate. So we actually direct school districts to do this, but we also provide the funding to enable them to do that, to do the professional development, to buy the books, to develop the curricula. All of that is contained within the body of this new bill. This is really fantastic. And I just want to say thank you to you and all the, all those who have been working on this. I know that in the Jewish community, um, it's it's been talked about recently as just this like bright light in Massachusetts that we could achieve something like this. It's incredibly important um, that schools are talking about genocide or talking about the Holocaust, that kids don't get to their adult years without having heard about uh, about what the Holocaust is and isn't what that means. Um, but more than that, I, I truly think that genocide ed- education is um, not, not just about anti-Semitism and not just about the Holocaust. It's about what does it mean for us to be raising children to be responsible and thoughtful upstanders in our world who can have a moral compass that and an understanding of the of the dangers of 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 falling back into into not just past historical moments but what's something very real and possible today Uh, we teach facing history in ourselves which is the holocaust education at temple israel um, with our seventh graders and many of the schools around here in boston uh, use that as well but there there are many different frameworks and it's just it's such an incredible way to, to really do a, an ethics-based curriculum in our schools, which, which is which is to me as important as math and English and, and building responsible citizens. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really torn on many occasions uh, because there appears from time to time to be a a focus on genocide uh, that sort of puts us into the framework of World War II um, and the atrocities that the Nazis perpetrated against the Jews. And yet, uh, from the United Nations, and I think you may have some insight into this too, uh, Natalia, there is a definition of genocide uh, that gets into man's uh, or human's inhumanity to other humans. It stretches beyond uh, the the Jewish Holocaust of World War II. It gets into our own genocide, uh, which actually founded this country, the genocide of the indigenous people uh, in America, uh, which predates uh, the Holocaust in Germany. It gets into the genocide of an entire uh, folks based on their color in terms of the Middle Passage from those who were taken from Africa. And it also in as an academic, there's also some parallels that run into what I would call uh, man's terrorism against man or human terrorism against others, uh, which gets into the individual atrocities uh, from both those that are described in the Bible when Herod <laughs> ordered all of the firstborn children in order to try to get rid of some, the, you know, someone who 
was destined to become king of kings and he was afraid of losing his throne uh, to uh, the uh, lynchings and killings of people in the South. The, the area of our inhumanity, uh, I think, starts at home. And here is where I think sometimes, uh, Jeff, we may miss the point. This is an area where the education of truth and ethics, and I like the way you, 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 know, you phrase that, Rabbi Susie, that it's really an ethical education that's needed. Uh, and a moral education and a philosophical piece as well. And this is actually the season for that. I think it's important for us to, when we look at what it is that we can celebrate together, look at what are the things that bring us together. Uh, and number one amongst everything is our humanity. No matter what your religion, all of us are the same species and all of us have a responsibility to one another to look after one another. And I think every single one of our spiritual um, upbringings uh, point us in that direction. I can't think of a single religion that doesn't talk about the need for us, uh, especially during this time of year, to be uh, helpful to one another, to be grateful for one another, to be uh, giving to one another. Uh, and many times we, uh, especially as I look at the commercialization of Christmas, we forget about those who uh, are food insecure, uh, people who are homeless, uh, because we begin to focus more on the fun and the things that we can do for our families. Uh, and yet, uh, like Reverend Barber, uh, out of the uh, people's campaign, it is important for us to recognize those who are not, uh, who don't have the means and are in need in our society. Uh, so I applaud the, uh, I applaud the bill, Jeff, and I hope that the, you know, cause I don't know the, you know, the total details of it, but I think our understanding of the uh, the need to celebrate life and to celebrate uh, our need to help one another by looking at how we have destroyed one another is a good thing. In other words, being able to take a look at some of our deeds in the past and to say we are not going to go back through that and then that was immoral, philosophically wrong, spiritually wrong, and none of our religions support that I think is a good thing. You know, um, going back um, in my floor remarks, urging the passage of this bill, I, I had a line in it that I think goes directly to what you were talking about. I said, indeed, it has been said that no problem in the world poses the question on what it means to be human quite like genocide, because genocide is not simply about killing people, but about destroying humanity. And uh, I truly believed that throughout this whole uh, discussion. And, and you had also uh, you mentioned, you know, um, atrocities that have occurred throughout history. And uh, the goal of this legislation is to um, teach about all of the atrocities uh, and not to focus on one. We had actually uh, included in the original bill uh, a list of 
genocides and atrocities that have occurred through history. And at the end of the day, we ended up taking out the list from the bill itself. They're in the curriculum framework. So uh, every every element that you talked about in your remarks, Michael, is included in the curriculum frameworks. Those can those can be more fluid and those can change with time uh, more efficiently than uh, legislation. What we did was we defined genocide in the bill as at least one of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And that's killing members of a national, ethnic, racial, or religious religious group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group, deliberately inflicting conditions of life on a national, ethnic, religious, racial, or religious group that are calculated to bring about physical, destruct, destruct, physical destruction of the group in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, or forcibly transferring children of a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group to another national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. You'll see we derive that from the United Nations uh, definition. So um, it really encapsulates a discussion of humanity. And uh, we are loath to dictate to school districts what they should be teaching as part of their curriculum. But we did discover through this discussion that there are some topics that just rise to the top and really should be included uh, in, a, in an education. And, and what's the portrait of a graduate uh, from a Massachusetts school? And clearly the subject of humanity and genocide is something that no child should leave a K to 12 education in Massachusetts without exposure to this uh, topic. And that really is what underlied uh, the bill. And you can probably see from the discussion we're having here why it took eight years uh, to get this right. And I think we, I think we did a great job. Uh, I'm very happy that uh, this finally uh, has made it. And uh, the governor has until December 4th, which is two days from this recording, to sign it. And I have been given every indication that uh, he's going to do just that. Uh, he's a little distracted by another announcement he made yesterday, but uh, <laughs> I'm confident that this will uh, take place uh, very soon. It's really, it's really fantastic. It's, um, you know, when you teach about genocide, it's not just about showing kids what evil looks like or talking about our history and, and the problematic moments and, and, and the sort of deprivation of, of, of what human beings are capable of doing to one another. But when you're, when you, when you teach in, in a certain way, you're able to also teach a story of resilience, of how communities survive, of how of how people do stand up against against the the violence and hate, and what it means for for us to continue to do our best to figure out how to be in this world together, and how our kids are the ones who are inheriting our world, and are are the ones who need to be resilient and strong and stand up against hate and violence. So um, I'm really I'm really excited to, to hear how. I mean, God willing, this passes and everything goes through. Um, just to see to see how this is able to bring change and to hear from educators what this means for them and how they're going to teach it and 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 how they're going to use the resources available. It's very cool. Uh, Jeff, um, I'm bothered uh, somewhat by the bill if it's only taught from a historical point of view and where the genocide happened. Yugoslavia, uh, when that uh, conflict arose. And it arose on past 
occurrences. It arose on ancient divides in history, the Turks and the Armenians. What if there is not a teaching of how we in, within ourselves can be kept swept up into a genocide acceptance? The United States accepted Iraq, killing the Kurds with gas. There are present-day instances that genocide today is happening in Africa, as I understand, without teaching, okay, how those emotions within you as the student can develop and how that needs to be handled in, in d diversified, uh, the the bill is only going to add to, to genocide if it's only taught from what bad things happened. We need to teach what goes into the individual support of a group that wants to do genocide and how you combat that. And, and I will share with you that that is an important part of this particular bill. And I'll read to you from one of the provisions. Instruction on genocide shall be taught consistent with the history and social science curriculum framework to one, promote the teaching of human rights issues in all public schools and school districts with particular attention to the study of the inhumanity of genocide, two, address the history and patterns of genocide that demonstrate how national, ethnic, racial, or religious hatred impacts nations and societies, and third, to reject the targeting of a specific population and other forms of prejudice that can lead to violence and genocide. So everything that you want, and you just talked about, it is uh, to be a part of that curriculum in our Massachusetts schools. And Jeff, I think it would be really important, I mean, maybe for the older kids to think about it through also an intersectional lens. I mean, realistically, the forced rape of women in Yugoslavia or forced sterilization of immigrants or the disability community that has, you know, not only were, you know, part of the Holocaust, you know, but even today are, are claiming that a lot of our approaches to disability is genocidal. We are, you know, trying to sort of get rid of people even through COVID. So thinking about how your national, religious, racial identity intersects with your gender, sexual orientation, your uh, you know ability or disability status is really critical. And I don't know if that can be taught. Um, I would hope so, because it's not, I do think these intersect in really, really um, powerful ways to you know, to make some groups particularly at risk. We know that some of these things certainly fester, not just for years or even decades, but there are some conflicts that fester for centuries. Uh, and that's really horrifically unfortunate that there just doesn't seem to be a resolution in some cases. Um, wiser people than I wrestle with this problem. Um, that said, one of the things I'd like to do is perhaps have an opportunity here for each of us to wish all, in our own way, the best of the season. Frank, what would you like to say to everybody in terms of celebrating the holidays? Merry Christmas <laughs> and have a happy, happy new year. Absolutely. No, keep going. And listen to 102.9 <laughs> FM 
on Frank's music because I'm probably uh, playing a lot of Christmas songs and I'm going to see if people rerun uh, Jeff, uh, Jim Derrick's and my interview around Christmas and Santa Claus and uh, on, uh, on, uh, on the cable TV. We'll make that happen. Just I would certainly do want to extend uh, my best wishes to everyone uh, over this holiday season. Frank, uh, you are a tough act to follow on that, but uh, that was a that was a beautiful, beautiful rendition. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to be with each and every one of you. Uh, I view this show as a gift to me. And uh, I thank you for uh, you know putting up with me and uh, and and engaging because uh I think uh, the community benefits from our discussion. So best wishes for a happy holiday season for everyone. And uh, I look forward to seeing y'all soon. And I want to thank Rabbi Susie Jacobson for joining us today and bring it back to what she talked about, you know, small family gatherings around the table. I wish everybody an opportunity to connect, whether it's virtually via Zoom, if it feels safer or with the close families in the warmth of your homes. I, I hope that we all remain healthy and take the necessary actions we need. Wear a mask indoors when you're with people you are not in your household. Please get vaccinated because truly, if we're talking about miracles and gifts, that is a miracle of science um, and let's not waste it. And we want Happy to holidays. celebrate these holidays. We want to be able to celebrate the holidays next year and beyond. And I won't profess to be poet laureate or anywhere near it, but every year I tend to write about the season in some way. And in years past, uh, I've done that around this time. I'm going to go back about five years to something I wrote then. It's a short piece called In the Deep of December. In the Deep of December, we muse. With poignant melancholy sense, our holidays impermanence, ephemeral, a consequence of merry mercantile pretense. Our youngest holidays beget sweet treats, toys, joys, and yet the best receiving lies in giving and thus defines the art of living. In the deep of December, this time is not the mark of something's end. It's turning around to start again. So be your here, own your now with urgent present tense allow you cherish these new moments, dear, with friends and family far and near. In the deep of December, renew. In darkness, Hanukkah. <clears throat> In darkness, Hanukkah is light. The festival menorah bright. Rededicate yourself, Lechaim, to life, to love, to joy, to time. Thank you for joining us. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us. It's been another journey toward a more perfect union. We all wish you all the best for the holidays. And until we meet, <clears throat> and until we meet again, I'm Peter J. This is Franklin Public Radio. <laughs>